to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, we are recording this on Saturday, uh, January the 13th, 2024. You're listening to this for the first time on Sunday, January 14th, and uh, the rebroadcast will air on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which is January 15th, 2024. Um, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would have been 95 years old um, had he lived. Um, my name is Jasmine and I'm here with my co-host Reese. How's it going Reese? It's going. It's Saturday. Happy that I'm not working. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that's all I got today. I'm here. How you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm the same. You know, I'm always happy to be here as well. You know, trying to take every day as a blessing. Um, yep. So, yeah, just once again, I'm hanging in there. Um, for our local news story, we'll be talking about New York hospitals having to pay big penalties for understaffing. For national news, we'll be discussing a North Carolina man who was recently exonerated after 44 years in prison. Uh, for world news, we'll be discussing the results of Taiwan's presidential elections. And in good news, we'll be talking about tiny homes that are helping to uh, address part of the homelessness crisis in Austin, Texas. Uh, So I will get started with the local news segment, and this information comes from Gothamist. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's quite lengthy, so I encourage you to read the full thing on your own. Uh, The title is, New York Hospitals Are Paying Big Penalties for Understaffing, Nurses Hope That Leads to Change, and this is by Caroline Lewis. Um, The article was published on Friday, January 12th. The 16-bed post-anesthesia care unit at Mount Sinai Morningside Hospital, where patients go after coming out of surgery, is supposed to have at least eight nurses on its 11 a.m. shift to perform tasks like monitoring vital signs and doling out pain medication. That's the number Mount Sinai agreed to in its contract with the New York State Nurses Association. But the hospital failed to meet that minimum 203 times last year, including 36 days where there were just four or five nurses available, an arbitrator found when deciding a case brought by unionized nurses at the hospital. On January 7th, the arbitrator ordered Mount Sinai to pay a penalty of nearly $250,000 for chronic understaffing in violation of the union contract despite acknowledging that the hospital made good faith efforts to recruit and hire additional nurses. The New York State Nurses Association and the Federation of Nurses slash UFT say that for the first time in 2023, they began securing cash payments over complaints about understaffing. The awards must be paid out to nurses who worked those understaffed shifts. The unions, which represent a combined 58,000 nurses statewide, say the trend gives them hope about making progress fighting hospital understaffing, which multiple studies show can lead to worse outcomes, including higher mortality rates. 
According to one University of Pennsylvania study, every additional patient a nurse is assigned increases the odds of a patient dying within 30 days of admission by 7%. Um, so that's, that's a pretty wild statistic. I just want you know the listeners to appreciate that. That's pretty grave. In some cases, union leaders say the penalties are working. In other cases, they're seeing little change so far. Representatives for the three New York hospital systems that have been ordered to pay these awards say they're working to beef up staff. Spokespeople for Montefiore and Mount Sinai added that they are struggling to fill vacancies amid a nationwide nursing workforce shortage. Shilpa Ingram, a spokesperson for Montefiore, pointed to what she described as a national staffing crisis for nurses. During the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, many nurses left permanent hospital jobs for more lucrative travel nursing gigs or left hospital care altogether. Healthcare employment in New York is generally on the rise again after dipping 3.6% in 2020, but it's growing at a slower rate than it was pre-COVID, according to Governor Kathy Hochul's 2024 State of the State report. She set a goal in 2022 of growing the healthcare workforce by 20% over the next five years. Hochul has made attempts to improve the nursing pipeline, such as allowing nurses to practice in New York with out-of-state licenses and allowing nursing students to complete up to a third of their clinical training through simulations. But the Greater New York Hospital Association, a hospital lobbying group, says the state Medicaid program also needs to boost its funding for hospitals in this year's budget to help pay for their efforts to recruit and retain nurses. Steve Retia, a spokesperson for NYU Langone, noted that the hospital has recruited travel nurses, worked to increase the pool of nurses who can float from one unit to another, and created an expedited procedure for job applications to recruit new nurses. Under Mount Sinai Hospital's contract with the New York State Nurses Association, nurses on the unit are supposed to be responsible for just one or two infants at a time since the babies need their focused attention. But Nina Horowitz, a nurse on the unit, testified in the case that nurses sometimes had to take care of three or four babies at a time instead. Staffing levels improved for a time after the award aided by floating nurses, Horowitz said, but ultimately the unit wound up short-staffed again. It means you don't get a break, said Horowitz. Our shift is 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Last week, personally, I was at work until 10 p.m. every night. Last year, shortly after nurses began tracking staffing levels at the NICU, and found them falling short of the, Janu- of the January contract, Mount Sinai Chief Nurf- Nursing Executive Beth Oliver told Gothamist it takes time to fill vacancies because the unit is so hyper-specialized. The hospital declined to comment on the current situation. These arbitration awards are rolling in as the State Department of Health is also starting to enforce a new hospital staffing law that took effect in 2022, which could bring additional financial penalties. Nurses had been fighting for legislation on hospital staffing for years and were finally able to propel it forward as the issue got more attention during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
The law required each hospital in the state to create a staffing committee and work with employees to set clear nurse-to-patient ratios for each unit. Hospitals are now supposed to adhere to staffing plans they submitted to the state last July. As of January 3rd, 804 complaints have been submitted and the health department has so far cited 14 hospitals for violations, according to health department spokesperson Cadence Aquaviva. She said these violations could result in fines of up to 2,000 per citation as well as other civil penalties. So yeah, I mean, I I have some um, mixed feelings about some of the elements of this story. Um, I definitely think that there needs to be a consequence when places are understaffed, but I'm not really sure about how this is going to help long term. Uh, so what do you, what do you think, Reese? I agree with you. Um, there definitely needs to be a consequence. It seems like that's what they're trying to do. But I think a bigger question for me is, you know, why why are they understaffed? Like, mm-hmm. is it that people are not applying for these positions? Are they not hiring a diverse pool from a diverse pool of applicants? Um, or, you know, I think there needs to be more information about things like that because oftentimes, this, I feel like I've heard these stories about nursing in New York for many years, that this has been a serious issue. And, you know, one of the schools I used to work at was a health science college. Our nursing program stayed packed every single semester. Um, it was only 30 seats and it was always packed. So I would like to know what's happening there. You know, where's the disconnect? Is it that there's not enough nurses in the field? Um, I just want to know. I just want to know what that looks like and how that can be improved. It's one thing to have a penalty. It's another thing to actually address the problem that is is here and why it keeps happening. Yeah, exactly. I'm on this. I'm thinking the same thing, Reese. You took the words right out of my mouth. Like, it doesn't seem like it's getting to the root of the issue. Um, it seems like it's punitive. And I think that that is what people initially go to is like, they want someone to pay or they want some type of punishment. But I think what ends up happening is like probably these hospitals and these companies in general, when you talk about fines and penalties, they find a way to change the law where like, they don't have to pay the penalty instead of fixing the problem. Like, yeah. and I think that that's what's where this is, they're going to be like paying these penalties is too much of a burden for us. So then that's going to go away instead of having more nurses to avoid the penalty, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I would love to hear, you know, what's, what's actually happening there. I mean, arguably nursing is a complicated profession. It is very hard to get into. Nursing school is very challenging. Um, so I know a lot of people who go through nursing school and it takes them a while to really actually successfully complete it. Um, it's a very competitive field, but in the same context, like I think there should be people in place to help with staffing issues if that's what it is. Um, as opposed to just something punitive, that's just kind of like you did something wrong. So I think we're on the same page with that. What do you think about some of the stuff they mentioned? Like, um, there were some changes that kind of made me feel a little alarmed, like when they were saying they're going to try to address the shortage by letting nursing students work, even though up to a third, is that what it said, of their practice would be on a simulation 
instead of like real people up uh, yeah up up to a third of their clinical training through simulations and to have let people who have licenses from out of state to practice like what do you think, think about that i think the licenses from out of state makes sense because you know sometimes that is a barrier for people just having to come into new york and take the new york you know examinations to get licensed in that state I know that it's very difficult for not just nursing, but other allied health uh, professionals to transition into New York because of things like this, or people from out with um, credentials that are outside of the U.S. Mm-hmm. They really put a lot of barriers to them being able, you know, there are doctors and nurses in their countries, but when they come there, they make them have to go through so many hoops. It just doesn't, it's just, it's never equivalent. You know, it makes, they make it very difficult. So maybe that could be something that would help. Uh, there is a portion for my understanding of, nursing clinical rotations that does happen uh, it's the latter part of the program so the students would have been through you know the necessary courses so that they could do that um, but that could be something right like having um just kind of taking a look at the curriculum for nursing altogether and seeing if that can help but you know one thing about nursing students and that's most people who go to medical school or one of these more difficult professions there are limits on the amount of hours you can work while you're in the program. So a lot of them don't really work very much because they have to be so focused and it's so challenging that it's hard to balance that. So I'd be interested to see if this leads to a shift in the curriculum styles um, of these various programs and, you know, maybe opening the opportunities up for people from out of state, which is a lot of people in New York, there's tons of transplants, Um, maybe that could help shift the conversation a little bit more as well. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely, I agree with you that it can be a challenge um, if you're coming from other places um, and outside of the state. Uh, I do think, like, I, I almost did a different story for local news that was about all these really massive cuts and layoffs at CUNY. And I thought of that when I'm seeing this, where, you know, there's a lot of cuts that are happening, like, in education and, like, cutting corners when it comes to educating children and young people. And I think that you do see the results of that years down the line, because you then can end up with people that might enter a nursing program, but they're unable to finish it because they just don't have the strong enough foundation to really complete the rigorous training and understand. Um, You might have, you know, I remember when I used to work at a CUNY, like that was very common for students to want to go into nursing. Um, But, you know, if all these different programs are getting cut and like maybe your, your foundation in like the basic sciences is not strong, or in other things, like, are you going to be successful finishing nursing school? Or are you going to have a hard time and have to switch to something else? Or, you know, I don't, I guess one of my concerns is I don't want, I don't think that the punitive thing is necessarily the, the solution because you're already at the tail end of the problem where it's understaffed. And I also don't know about I'm worried about them thinking, oh, the solution is to just have more people stretched thin where they're floating from place to place, but they're not that specialized, or we're going to lower what the standard is, like, not really for people from out of state, because I think that's different, but people who are just entering the profession, like, for the sake of having them in there, 
lowering the standard of like how much practice time they've gotten with real people because I think that can lead to dangerous situations as well um so yeah it's definitely I think it's way more complex than just find the hospital like it's a much bigger issue than that and they mentioned so many people just leaving the profession altogether because of COVID and other things like I think it's a lot of stuff coming to a head all at once yeah, a lot of them leave because they're just burnt out too. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they're just so burnt out. They work so hard, you know, and it doesn't matter. They make good money, but it's just kind of like, what is it worth, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I agree with you about making sure that when those students enter that level of their training, that they are prepared. That's why I said actually restructuring the curriculum a bit to see where those pockets are, but it's still, you know, they still must be supervised in those spaces. So they're still going to need more nurses anyway. Yeah, you know, for that, sure. that's the thing about you know, that. You can't just put them on the floor without licensed uh, practitioners around mm-hmm. to um, guide them. So, you know, that's right. it could be more bodies. It's not necessarily going to stop the problem. Right. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I have nurses in my family. My aunt Val's a nurse. My grandmother was a nurse many years. I have a cousin who's a nurse. Um, it was a nurse for many years. My late Aunt Mary was a nurse. Like it's a very challenging and very important job. But it's just like with anything, like you need to also be able to have a work life balance. You can't be running ragged, you know, working seven a.m. to ten o'clock at night, like the one nurse was saying, and you're dealing with fragile like infants. That's not good for your mental health. It's not good for the babies. Like you know, we got to get to the many roots of this problem and make it an appealing profession. So more people want to go onto that track and, Mm -hmm. you know, make sure that everyone who goes into it, it has the right support and foundation so they can stick with it. Um, but it looks like we're just, we're not there right now. So we'll see. Yep. All right, you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our first musical break, this is Solange with Cranes in the Sky. We'll be right back.
a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at radiofreebrooklyn.org donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, we have Reese with our national news story. This story is taken from an article on CNN. Um, The title of the article is North Carolina Man Exonerated After 44 Years of Wrongful Imprisonment to Receive $25 Million Settlement. The authors of this article are Jamie Lynch and Lauren Mascarenas. A man exonerated and freed after serving 44 years in prison for a crime he did not commit is to receive $25 million in the second largest wrongful conviction settlement ever, Duke Law School's wrongful conviction clinic announced. Ronnie Long, who is Black, was accused of raping a 54-year-old white woman and convicted by an all-white jury of rape and burglary in 1976. Long has now settled a civil lawsuit with the city of Concord and the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation for a total of $25 million, according to a news release from the clinic. Long's conviction was vacated in 2020 after a trickle-in post-trial disclosure unearthed a troubling and striking pattern of deliberate police suppression of material evidence. U.S. Court of Appeals Judge Stephanie Thacker wrote in the decision. The suppressed evidence which included semen samples and fingerprints from the crime scene that did not match Long was deliberately withheld by law enforcement, Thacker said in the filing. In a statement, the city of Concord acknowledges and accepts responsibility for the significant errors in judgment and willful misconduct by previous city employees that led to Long's wrongful conviction and imprisonment, the city said in a statement. Long wrongly served 44 years, three months and 17 days in prison for a crime, the city said. No amount of money will ever compensate Ronnie Long for the 44 years he spent incarcerated and the indifference of numerous elected officials who fought to keep him incarcerated, despite overwhelming evidence of his innocence. The clinic supervising attorney, Jamie Lau, said in the release. While he was in prison, his parents passed away. He missed birthdays, graduations, funerals, and other important events that marks a person's life. He can never get this time back. Long settlement includes $22 million from the city of Concord and $3 million from North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, which he was previously awarded. CNN has reached out to the Borough of Investigation for a comment. After Long's conviction was vacated and he was released from prison on August 27, 2020, he was told he would receive $750,000 in compensation paid out at $50,000 a year, the maximum amount possible under North Carolina law. In 2021, Long told CNN he intended to fight that law. 
The amount is wholly inadequate to compensate him after taking away more than 44 years of his liberty. Lau previously told CNN, the larger the large settlement and the public apology from the city are significant, said James E. Coleman Jr., the clinic's director. The fact that the city of Concord is taking responsibility for what happened to Ronnie and has apologized in such a forthright manner likely will lift some of the burden he will carry forward. We wish others responsible for these miscarriages of justice would follow Concord's example. While there are no measures to fully restore to Mr. Long and his family all that was taken from them, through this agreement, we are doing everything in our power to right their past wrongs and take our responsibility, the Concord City Council said in their statement. We are hopeful that we can begin the healing process for Mr. Long and our community and that together we can move forward while learning valuable lessons and ensuring nothing like this ever happens again. Long has been spending time with his loved ones and purchased one of his dream cars, a Cadillac upon release. He previously told CNN, he said he and his wife were hoping to buy a home. So that's the end of the article there. Um, this is just so sad that this man sat there for 44 years and people don't just go to prison and sit and do nothing. You know, they keep trying and they keep trying. If they have supportive family and a good legal team, they appeal things, they try to get early release. They do all these things, you know, they don't just sit there and rot for the time being. So I can only imagine how much he went through to get to this point. Um, it's nice that the city apologized. You don't see that very often in most of these exoneration cases um, where someone is taking responsibility for this. But I almost want to take it a step further, further in that the people who were responsible for this, if they're still alive, should face some sort of penalty or, or something for what they did to this man hmm. and his family. Hello, like this I is mean, disgusting. Forty-four years, man. Forty-four and years. That's older than both of us. I know. I was just gonna say more than we've been on this earth, and you know, it's it's funny because it, it kind of goes back to what we were saying in the first story that paying out a settlement is not gonna solve the problem. There's rot right. there. Like the root of the problem is you have a messed up racist quote-unquote justice system and every time i see these news stories where if it's the police have killed someone like they've murdered someone and then there's a settlement oh they paid the family however many millions of dollars they brutalized someone oh we found misconduct uh pay out hundreds of thousands of dollars this case they oh sorry put someone away for decades of his life and not by no accident they deliberately made it so that he stayed back there because they were hiding evidence that would have shown that he was innocent oh my bad here's some money that's not good enough you know and i, exactly. I you know I'm, I'm not gonna fault anyone for getting what you can't like if you know that has happened to you or to someone you love and you do have a settlement or something that you're able to get like i know people need money but i think in the grand scheme of things it's almost like you know we're not slaves anymore where you can put a price tag on somebody's life and be right. like uh it's all good and that's the way these stories make me feel yeah. You know, it's so 
they need more yeah. than just some accountability some other stuff needs to happen to those demons that did that so he got stuck behind there for a rape he didn't commit and also who else is a victim of this corrupt ass police division mm-hmm. like who else has been a victim of this stuff you know this is why they need to dig and find out who these people are and bring them to trial because i'm sure he's not the only one um for them to be able to hide something like semen samples like that's the main evidence in a rape case <laughs> that is the thing that brings down the conviction like when you have the proof so you know for them to be able to uh, mishandle something so important to the trial they were just frivolous with it and i'm sure that they did that to many other people you know i'm sure that you know, whoever his family is that supported him, the legal team that supported him to make this thing happen, exoneration takes a long time. It's not one of those things that just happens and then shit go back to normal. You know, luckily this man is getting money so he can take care of his family, but had he not got this money, what are he supposed to do now? Find a job? Are you serious right now? 44 years. Think about how much the world has changed. Um, there's so many things he has to learn. You know, it's just, it's awful. You know, it didn't say whether he had children. He probably couldn't. He'd been in there so damn long. <laughs> he probably missed that mark, you know, yeah. with his wife. Um, and it's so sad. His parents died. Like, just just the thought of somebody just sitting there. Like, his mental health, I'm sure, is something that he probably has to work on every day, you know? And that is just, it's not okay. I definitely think that they need to dig deeper within this administration or whoever these people are who mishandled this stuff because there are more stories like this that need to be told. Yeah, I'm looking at the article from 2020. He's um, now he's 60. Let's see. It was 2024. Now this article is in 2020. So he was 64 in 2020. So he's 63 now. And he spent 44 years of his life so he was a young man. Exactly. You know, life just starting out. And this happened. And like you said, this is the tip of the iceberg. The things that you see where it actually comes to light what happened, that's a fraction, yeah. half of a fraction of the number of times it ha- it's happened to other people. And you know what? I'm not trying to be funny, but sometimes like maybe like it's, oh, this was a good guy or he had people in his life that were sympathetic to him and they loved him and all of that. Some people don't have that. Like maybe the person was like, I don't know, petty criminal or they already had a record or they were not that great of a person or whatever. And when they get caught up in something like this, it sticks because they don't have people going to bat for them and fighting hard, but they don't deserve that either. You know, and that's what these police, a lot of them do. Like they find someone, it's like, uh, we just put it on somebody, especially a black person. Like just so we can say we did it. Yeah. Well, these crooked ass cops and all of their friends, you know, just, I don't know, I guess I'd be hoping that one day, you know, we'll get some level of, I don't even want to wish you know, anything bad on anybody, but in situations like this, it just really makes you feel a level of hatred um, for that whole division of, of society, because this is what they do. Abuse their power, take people's lives away from them, tamper with the evidence that they need. They just really make it really, really tough for people. And so, you know, like I said, um, when I was in grad school, I, I studied um, 
the exoneration project when it first started one one of the like flagship ones that first started and to build that program out took so long and the people who go through it you know the process is just like they for to not give up hope this shit can take forever man forever but you can never stop because that's the only way you ever get there um so shout out to them um his team that worked with him for all this time did not give up on this man because it's you know it's people like that who are really dedicated to changing humanity um that make these sort of things happen so while it's awful what happened to him i am glad that he is out and he is able to live the rest of his life you know however the best he can but um yeah you know it's just awful to have to tell the story of a man's life being taken away for for no fucking reason at least he lived to tell about it i know you know so as as upsetting as it is you know definitely happy for him that he's out and that he's getting some kind of compensation you know it can't make up for what he lost but like you know just like you said he's still here you know, and he's still got years ahead of him. So wishing him luck and that more of this comes to light and other people can be freed. Absolutely. All right. You are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our next musical break, this is a Cold War classic. This is 99 Luftballons by Nana. We'll be right back. computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, I will be talking about a world news story. Uh, So the world news is going to be about Taiwan's uh, presidential elections. The results just came in. Uh, But before I got into that, I wanted to just give a little bit of background about Taiwan because, you know, personally, it's not 
you know, I'm not well versed in the history of like every other country or in especially some continents, I really don't know much. So I wanted to look into it a little bit more and share some of what I found with our listeners. So uh, most of this information comes from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, there's a couple things that are also from Wikipedia, just general. Uh, so Taiwan is also known as the Republic of China. That's its official name. It's an island in the Western Pacific Ocean off the coast of southeastern China. Before the 1600s, Taiwan was a self-governing uh, place with no central ruling authority. Uh, there's been there's different like indigenous peoples that have inhabited the island and still currently live there going back thousands of years. Um, but today, more than 80% of the population is descended from Han Chinese people, uh, in immigrants who started to come like in the 1600s. Uh, people have migrated to Taiwan from mainland China starting in the Middle Ages onward. But while it was a Dutch colony in the mid 1600s, that's when large numbers like tens of thousands of Chinese farmers were encouraged to immigrate to Taiwan to work there under Dutch rule. Uh, the Chinese Qing dynasty, Qing dynasty or Qing annexed Taiwan in 1693, but it became a Japanese colony from 1895 to 1945. Uh, when Japan was defeated in World War II. And that was at that time in 1945, Taiwan was returned to Chinese control. Uh, in 1949, the Chinese Communist armies defeated nationalist forces on in mainland China and established the People's Republic of China there. Um, the nationalist government and armies fled mainland China to Taiwan which resulted in the separation again of Taiwan from China. Uh, so in the years after the Republic of China or Taiwan claimed jurisdiction over the Chinese mainland as well as Taiwan, but in the early 1990s, Taiwan's government dropped this claim to mainland China. The Chinese government in Beijing has maintained that it has jurisdiction over Taiwan and has continued to propound a one China policy, a position that few countries in the world dispute. There has been no agreement, however, on how or when, if ever, the two entities will be reunified. Um, so some of you probably already know that that's not something that I knew, so I, I thought it was helpful context. Um, and before I go into the article, they mentioned the KMT in the article, which is the Chinese Nationalist Party or Kuomintang. And that party ruled mainland China from 1928 to 1949. And then most, and then Taiwan for most of the years since 1949. There's the TPP or the Ta or Taiwan's People Party, which is a center left party established in 2019. And the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, uh, which is the Taiwanese Nationalist Party that's center or center left, and it's been uh, it was founded in 1986. Uh, so they feel that Taiwan is a separate; it's its own entity separate from China. Uh, Taiwan has voted for Lai Ching-te 
to be its next president, ushering in a historic third term in power for the pro-sovereignty Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, in a result that will anger Beijing and heighten tensions across the Taiwan Strait. The victory of Lai, who since 2020 has served as vice president to Tsai Ing-wen, marks the continuation of a government that promoted a sovereign Taiwan and a national identity separate to China and oversaw some of the deepest cross-strait tensions in decades as Beijing pushed towards its goal of annexation. China's Taiwan Affairs Office responded to Lai's win saying the result of the election would not stop the general trend that the motherland will eventually and will inevitably be reunified. The spokesperson Chen Binghua also claimed the minority result showed the DP DPP did not represent mainstream political public opinion on Taiwan. All major parties reject the prospect of Chinese rule. Early results showed Lai had won more than 40% of the vote ahead of Hu Yuyi from the opposition Kuomintang, uh, KMT, and the third place Taiwan People's Party. Pre-election polls had shown Lai with a much narrower lead. The DPP lost control of Taiwan's 113-seat parliament, the legislative Yuan. Lai pledged to work with the opposition parties and review their policies as long as they bring benefit to the people, indicating he anticipated a difficult parliament dominated by two opposition parties. Lai, who comes from a more radical wing of the DPP, has pledged to follow Tsai's careful balancing of the U.S. and China, in which she avoided formalizing Taiwan's de facto independence and antagonizing Beijing by saying Taiwan was already a sovereign nation and defending the status quo. Beijing claims Taiwan as part of its territory and has vowed to reunify it with China and has not ruled out the use of force to achieve this aim. It has called the DPP a party of separatists detests Lai and has twice sanctioned his new vice president, Xiao Bi Kim, who until recently served as Taiwan's envoy to the U.S. The DPP has presented itself to voters as the party of cautious resistance, avoiding provocation, but building defenses and strengthening international relationships, particularly with the U.S. and its allies. The KMT, which also opposes Chinese rule, had accused the DPP of increasing the danger and said that if it won the election, it would seek to restore dialogue and friendly relations with China to reduce tensions. Lai said China had a responsibility to maintain peace in the region. Um, so I'm not going to finish reading the whole thing because it, it is pretty lengthy and it's a complex um, political situation, but... It seems like, you know, it's a big deal, like as far as global affairs, um, I wasn't, I had heard of the one China policy, but I wasn't, I was fuzzy on what specifically it meant. Um, so the fact that this is the leader who has been elected, but his party is not in the majority anymore, like it'll be interesting to see what this means 
um, for the region and also for other world powers. Yeah, I agree. Definitely um, these type of shifts. I always think about if it's restoring something, renewing something, but for the people to elect him, obviously they, you know, unanimously see the value and what he values. Um, so it will be interesting to see how this plays out on the world stage. I'm not very familiar with the background either, so thank you for giving that. But it's also um, one of those things where with China being a superpower, you know, whatever happens there kind of affects the global markets as well. So that'll be interesting to see how it plays out in the coming year. Looking at some of the numbers, so Lai, Lai Ching, to, like he won 40.2% of the votes and the, the votes have finished being counted today so 40 percent is a good number okay. but it's also not everybody like it's less than half yeah. and like that okay. thir that third place party that's new that just popped up i think in 2019 they didn't get very many votes but it seems like though the the way the pie chart split between the three parties it seems kind of like well it's like a third of the people want one thing, another third, like more than a third want him, but it's not half. And they also don't have the majority in parliament anymore. So he won, yes, but it does seem like it's not like a really strong like mandate for that party right. in particular. So there might, it seems like there is still some significant division amongst yeah. the population on the best way. Well, interesting to see. I mean, elections for these past these past few elections with all the countries that we've discussed on the show have really been telling to, you know, what the people are thinking. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just interesting to see how it's going to pan out, like what changes will be made, what issues will happen. So I hope that it's good for the people. I hope that it's actually to serve them in a way where they can see effective change in areas that's necessary for that region. The Democratic People's Party, they've been in power for the past eight years under President Tsai Ing-wen. This will be the third term that the DPP has been in power in Taiwan. So something to watch closely. You know, if you don't pay attention to these things, I encourage you to start because it does affect all of us, you know, now that we're in such a globally connected world you know just take the extra time to like read up and educate yourself on these things instead of just being like oh whatever you know it'll affect us one way or another right eventually okay so you had a uh, some good news coming out of texas yeah this is an interesting little story um the title of it is tiny Sorry, Texas Tiny Home Community Thrives with 2,000 Neighbors, Easing Homelessness in Austin. Uh, 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 oh, and the author is Andy Corpley. In Travis County, beyond the zoning laws of Austin City, a village of tiny homes has been easing the chronic homelessness in Austin for years. But after the latest round of philanthropic fund fundraising, it's slated to become one of the largest communities of its kind anywhere in the country. In 2019, 
GNN reported that Community First Village opened up to renters on the outskirts of Austin with the mission to exclusively house and accommodate formerly homeless people so they can have the freedom and security to heal from their years spent on the streets. In addition to hosting 100 RVs and 125 microhouses, the village also included community gardens, beehives, workspaces, playgrounds, recreational areas, parks, kitchens, and a dozen other group facilities. Residents are only required to pay between $200 to $430 per month, which many of them afford through jobs that they secure within the village. The village was created by the Mobile Loaves and Fish Charity in 2014. Though the, through the, sorry, though the community space currently houses 200 formerly homeless residents, the organization began constructing additional facilities last year. Once complete, the village will be able to accommodate almost 500 people, which was about 40% of Austin's chronically homeless population circa 2019. In fall of 2022, the mastermind both, behind both the charity and the community first broke ground on the adjacent site that will take the number of tiny homes to 2,000 designed by architectural firms that offer pro bono bids to design the best energy efficient homes. No one has ever done what we're about to do. Mark Hilbenlink, the director of Austin's largest homeless service provider told the New York Times. And a big feature for the Times, Lucy Tompkins documents the stories of hope and recovery that some of the residents have lived through since moving to the community. First, which is run by a Christian ethic of neighborhoods of knowingness. A dozen imitation villages have supposedly cropped up in cities around the nation, all following the path of neighbor, neighborliness and sustainability put forward by the community first. So this is, you know, really cool um, opportunity, use of space, use of funds, use of uh, community engagement um, that's turning things around for people. I think this model should be mandatory um if they can make it in any urban center that has a lot of homelessness obviously these you know larger cities like la and new york where you know the need is desperate um should definitely adopt this policy and find ways to you know build similar communities you know people don't need a lot to have a sustainable life they need to live in a place where they feel safe be able to afford it and be able to gain skills so that they, they can, you know, transition to greater, greater, greats, greater heights. So I just love that this community is just building and they are taking it so serious to build the next complex right across the street. It's just, you know, you don't hear about crime and issues like that. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but this is such a great use of um, philanthropy and just vision from the people who have created this community first. It sounds like uh, from what that article said that this is working out for the group in Austin. And I think that that's great. Um, I, I kind of question like expanding to other places because I feel like, you know, people should also be able to live in like a regular sized home. You know what I mean? Instead of it, be yeah. I don't want it to become like a second tier of home that's for certain types of people. But then if you have enough, you can have like a normal size apartment, you know, so I, I think we got to be careful about that. But, you know, I'll always be happy for someone that's going through a hard time and like they're able to get some relief because that's super important, you know, and that's the it's like an emergency at that point. So I'm happy that they're getting some relief. Yeah, definitely 
something to consider. I hope it functions more so as a transitional space. Right. You know, to just kind of help people get into a better situation. I don't know if there's like time limits or anything like that to living there, but, um, you know, definitely a, a step in the right direction. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay, you have been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Stay tuned for more community-based Brooklyn radio. Um, And to end our show today, being that this is MLK weekend, and on Monday will be his 95th birthday, uh, for our last song, this is actually an excerpt from a speech uh, that he gave on April 4th, 1967, uh, to a crowd of 3,000 people at Riverside Church in New York City. Uh, The title of the speech was Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. Uh, This was the first time that he made a public statement against the Vietnam War, and it made him very unpopular with a lot of people. Um, So much respect for him, like to him, knowing that he was making enemies, but he decided it was still important to speak out uh, when he thought that what his government was doing was wrong. So... Here is the man himself. This is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. Stay safe, everybody. Have a good week. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here tonight And how very delighted I am to see you expressing your concern about the issues that will be discussed tonight by turning out in such large numbers. I also want to say that I consider it a great honor to share this program with Dr. Bennett, Dr. Cominger and Rabbi Heschel, some of the distinguished leaders and personalities of our nation. And of course, it's always good to come back to Riverside Church. Over the last eight years, I have had the privilege of preaching here almost every year in that period. It is always a rich and rewarding experience to come to this great church and this great program. I come to this magnificent house of worship tonight because my conscience leaves me no other choice. I join you in this meeting because I am in deepest agreement with the aims and work of the organization which has brought us together, clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam. The recent statements of your executive committee are the sentiments of my own heart, and I found myself in full accord when I read its opening lines, a time comes when silence is betrayal. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. 
The truth of these words is beyond doubt, but the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one. <clears throat> Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war. Nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom and in the surrounding world. Moreover, when the issues at hand seem as perplexing as they often do, in the case of this dreadful conflict, we are always on the verge of being mesmerized by uncertainty. But we must move on. Some of us who have already begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak is often a vocation of agony. But we must speak. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision, but we must speak. And we must rejoice as well, for surely this is the first time in our nation's history that a significant number of its religious leaders have chosen to move beyond the prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of a firm descent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. Perhaps a new spirit is rising among us. If it is, let us trace its movements and pray that our own inner being may be sensitive to its guidance. For we are deeply in need of a new way beyond the darkness that seems so close around us. Though the cause of evil prosper, yet this truth alone is strong. Though her portion be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong, yet that scaffold sways the future. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. And if we will only make the right choice, we will be able to transform this pending cosmic elegy into a creative psalm of peace. We will make the right choice. We will be able to transform the jangling discords of our world into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. We will but make the right choice. We will be able to speed up the day all over America and all over the world when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream.